Well, this text is a particularly good one. I have to say, I was thinking that if I was able to choose to witness one story or one miracle, probably besides, you know, Jesus' own resurrection, this would be the one. If I got to be there in person and see it, I mean, this story with the the relational drama, the sorrow, the pain, the sheer raw display of Jesus' divine power, and an incredible, you know, conclusion, Lazarus, come out! What a moment to witness. Life from the grave. I'd love to have been there. But the thing is, if you read this story you realize that the vast majority of the story and its teaching is actually focused in on death, not so much Lazarus' resurrection. Ninety percent of this story is completely focused on his death and the surrounding circumstances. Jesus dealing with and confronting death. It's important. It's important for us to think about death. One of my pastor friends from England, William Taylor, told me that when people ask him that question that pastors kind of dread, which is, what do you do for a living? You know, you're out with people, they don't know you very well, you've been with them for maybe a couple hours, you're fishing or something, and then one of them finally says, so what do you do? And you say, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a minister. And then you can kind of see they're, they're processing everything they said, did I swear, what did I say, I shouldn't have told that joke. And... Um, And then they change for the rest of the day, right? They're all guarded around you. So his answer to that uh, is when people say, what do you do for a living? He says, oh, I help people prepare for death. And he said they kind of, they think, is he selling insurance? What does he do, you know? And, um, but he ends up, he does it mostly, though, because he hopes he might get in a good conversation about death and being ready. And that's what this text does for us. It helps us think and contemplate death. And there's kind of three surprises in the text that catch us off guard that I think are the teaching moments uh, that I want to focus in on. There's a lot here, so we're not going to see everything. But we're going to focus in on three surprises. And the first one is, this is point one, the first one is that Jesus weeps. You saw it there in verse 35. It says, what? Jesus wept. If you're thinking about starting a memorization program of the Bible, that's a good verse to start with. John 11:35. Jesus wept. You got it? It's memorized. Done. Now, that may not su- seem like a surprise to you because you, you know the verse. But if you think about it, it's surprising. Here Jesus is, just moments from raising his friend from the grave, something that he knows he's going to do successfully. I mean, he's about to blow everybody's minds. He's about to break the chains of death. He's about to turn their sorrowful weeping into tears of joy. And he's, he's crying. You see, if I was in that situation, if I was him, I think I... I don't think I would have cried. I think I would have had a hard time, you know, wiping the grin off my face. I would have been like, you don't, you guys, you won't believe what, don't cry. It's going to be fine. You won't believe it. It's going to be a Watch this. That's what I would have been saying. But Jesus 
breaks down in tears. Why? Well, many of the Jews that were there watching this scene, they think it's because of his his love for John. Look at verse 36. It says, Jesus wept, verse 35, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. In other words, Jesus is deeply moved at the loss of his beloved friend. So basically, he's, he's feeling a lot, a lot the way we do at, at a funeral, sorrowful, lonely. And thus he cries. But I don't think that's what it is. I mean, Jesus isn't feeling loss. He's already told them that his, his friend is just sleeping. And then he's going to awaken him in just a moment. I think, again, that the Jews, as they've many times throughout this book, I think they've misunderstood Jesus. Now, others think that the impetus for Jesus' tears is, uh, is clearly stated in verse 33. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. So he, he sees their tears. In other words, when Jesus comes upon this scene of mourning, where Lazarus' family and friends are overcome with grief and they're, and they're kind of wailing in despair, kind of in sympathetic resonance with them, he is moved. So as a friend shares a friend's pain, Jesus, he cries with them. He feels their pain. And I think this is, this is true. This is at least part of the truth for, for his tears. In fact, it's an amazing truth. It testifies to the reality of Jesus' full humanity. Not only is he the divine, all-powerful God of all things, but, but he became one of us. He became a crying little baby came a, a young boy growing in knowledge and struggling with this world. He felt hunger and thirst and temptation. And thus in Hebrews 4.15, it tells us that he can and does sympathize with us in every way. Isaiah 53 predicted that he would be a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. This is the kind of savior that he is. He is not merely some transcendent kind of Allah, some distant, impersonal God or, 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 or even kind of a new age force. He doesn't pass off our pain and suffering as a matter of karma. He enters into our world, our lives. Jesus shares in our tears. He knows our sufferings intimately. In fact, it won't be long before he knows them fully, universally at the cross. It's an amazing truth to think about. Our God feels our pain. He feels what we are going through deeply. But, you know, such personal empathy, I don't think, is the ultimate reason for Jesus' tears here. Because there's a very interesting phrase in this text. Look back at verse 33. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. 
Some of your translations may say there that he was, uh, that he groaned deeply or that he sighed heavily or that he was deeply touched. They're all trying to catch the nuance of the verb here. It's the same verb that's used both in the New Testament, consistently in the New Testament, and in the Septuagint to express anger, indignation, outrage. That's how it's used every single time it's used. You see, as Jesus takes in this post-mortem scene with all its despair and lament and pain, his tears are more profound than mere human despair over relational loss. They're more profound than the sympathetic tears of a true friend, although I think they involve all of this. But ultimately, his tears well up out of a deep-seated rage. Now, you may think that's a bit strange. You know, it's out of place. I don't don't go to a funeral and feel enraged. That just seems wrong. But that's because we don't really get death what it is. Jesus understands what he's dealing with. He understands what's right in front of him. Jesus understands that death is the full blossom of our sin. Suffering and death and the the havoc that they wreak upon our lives are the ultimate consequence of a world that has rejected its creator and sustainer. The father who gives them life, his father who he is one with, it's an affront to him. You see, Jesus knows and feels death's sorrow and pain at a deeper level than we can grasp. It's not just about loss to him, it's about personal rejection and betrayal. It's about alienation from the Father and from him. And he knows the destruction it brings to this world and ultimately the damnation of our souls that he brings, and he hates it. This is what is so amazing about the incarnation. Jesus, in taking on flesh, not only entered fully into all our suffering and pain, but in doing so, he also chose to come face to face with our sin and the betrayal and the alienation and the separation and the destruction that it brings everything that he hates So Jesus' tears are a divine mixture of empathy and outrage. Now you may be thinking as you're listening to this, I hear what you're saying, Carrie, but it doesn't feel that way to me. It doesn't doesn't seem like Jesus is even aware of my pain sometimes doesn't seem like he knows my suffering or the suffering of this world. In fact, quite often it seems like he's distant and uninterested, if I'm honest. I mean, if he feels and hates death so much, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he step into my suffering situation where my family member is sick and dying and just fix it? Why didn't he prevent 
my loved one's death. Well, that brings me to the second surprise in this text. It's in verse 5. Jesus has just been informed that Lazarus, his friend, is very ill. And there's an implicit call on him to come immediately and give his attention for him to come and do something. And what do we read? Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. A second surprise, isn't it? Jesus, he waits. He doesn't go. He delays two more days. He does nothing for two days. And the implicit question all the way through this text is, why? Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's she saying? Why didn't you come? Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why didn't you do something, Jesus? Verse 37. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Surely Jesus could have stopped this suffering and made him well. That's the question. Why? Why didn't he? Why does Jesus let Lazarus suffer and even die? Well, the answer was actually given in verse 5 and 6. It's hard to see in our English texts. Uh, because uh, the, the word so there, it's kind of, it's actually a connecting word between the two verses. It would best be translated, I think, therefore. So let's read 5 and 6 with, with a therefore. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why? Does Jesus let Lazarus suffer and die because he loved them? Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. That's why he let him die. Because he loved him. His lack of action here, his doing nothing, is actually out of love for them. You see, we may know what's going to happen but they didn't. So I want us to put your, ourselves in their shoes for a minute. They came to Jesus in a time of crisis and called on him to intervene, to do something, because they knew he could. And he doesn't respond. Have you ever been there? Has ever felt that way in your life? It's so, it's so obvious to them what he should do and that it should be done now. And they're calling on him, but he just doesn't listen to them. You ever been there? And time passes and things get worse 
and still no response, and disaster strikes, and they can't understand. Have you ever been there? I know I have. Different levels, different times in my life, I've, I've prayed, and I've cried out to God, and I'm waiting for his answer, and I'm very sure about what God should do. And I'm sure when he should do it and how he should do it. I know what the loving thing to do is, I think. I know the compassionate thing. I know the pain of the situation. Why won't he just listen to me and fix it? See, this text reminds us to really put away really such arrogance because Jesus loves us. He is acting out of love and he knows better than us. He knows the situation and the details here better. He knows the pain and suffering deeper in a way we can't even approach. He knows the right timing in ways we can't understand. And most importantly, in his love, he knows how to work it all together towards something much greater. Something probably not even on our radar screens. And that's what's happening here. You see, Jesus was very aware of something about Martha and Mary and many of the disciples around him. Something they couldn't see about themselves. We see it revealed in the exchange between, in the uh, exchange uh, between, where did, it go, where did they go? Mary's being, uh, in verse 21 through 26, between Jesus and Martha, excuse me. Jesus has just shown up in Bethany as Martha is being consoled. And, and, and this is what, what we read, verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, Jesus starts talking about the resurrection of Lazarus. And Martha can't fathom that he's talking about the present. She says, yeah, yeah, I know. I know it'll be resurrection at the end on the last day. I know, I know I'll rise then, Jesus. It doesn't cross her mind that Jesus could do it then and there. That's why she's so distraught and saying as he arrived, if only you had been here. Clearly in her mind it was too late. Her belief in Jesus is limited. It's it's small. I mean, he's a healer and everything. And she knows all his, his titles, 
He's a prophet, son of God, the Christ. But this is death. It's final, it's over, it's too late. And Jesus says to her, I am life. I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? He knows she's struggling to believe it. And her sister Mary is in the same boat. She made the same statement about Jesus being too late in verse 32, didn't she? You're too late. He's already died. You can't do anything now, Jesus. As much as she loves Jesus and has a certain amount of faith in him, she doesn't really get who he actually is. And the disciples are really in the same boat of unbelief, and Jesus knows it. Look at verse 14 and 15. I love this in the text. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. They don't really get it, none of them. They don't believe That he is actually God in the flesh, the originator and source and giver of all life. And who can blame them? I mean, look at that statement in verse 25. Again, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Die. What a claim. I can give you life beyond the grave for eternity now. And he's not talking about some pantheistic absorption absorption into nature so you can go on because life goes on and you're kind of part of the dirt. And he's not talking about being reincarnated as a rat or a cow. He is saying he can give you life, perfect human life like it was in the garden that takes one beyond the grave and goes on forever today. That's big. That's a big claim. What will it take for them to believe, to get this, to trust him fully even in the dark shadow of this horrible death. Well, Jesus knows what it will take, doesn't he? And he's working, allowing and using circumstances that seem completely wrong. Suffering of their loved one, delay and response to their pleas and prayers, even the sorrow of death. And we can see as readers that in all of this, Jesus is working to do something incredible. This, that this is him loving them. And that brings me to the, the last section of our, our text, verse 38 through 44. Here we see the, the final surprise. Not so much for us because we know the story. But again, put yourself in their shoes. Look at verse 38 with me. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, 
By this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Martha still hasn't a clue. She's just worried about the odor. And again, we see her limited view of Jesus. Death is just too big. And her view of Jesus is too small. She can't imagine what he's about to do. So we have verse 41. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's a stunning miracle, a shocking display of divine power. Jesus, by his mere words, breaks the chains of death. Jesus weeps over death because he feels it and he hates it. Jesus waits in the face of death and suffering because he's working in it and he's working in them. But then... Jesus speaks life. It's the biggest surprise of the text, point three. He speaks life. What an authority. He just says it. He just says, Lazarus, come out. Think of the power in that moment. He doesn't dance around the the tomb begging the deities to do something trying to call down some blessing from heaven. He doesn't jump on Lazarus' body and begin pounding on his chest and give him breath. He just speaks life out of who he is. The one who spoke creation into existence. And think of all that happened in that moment. That's why I had Ezekiel 37, that passage read where we sort of see this reversal of all the deterioration and decay, bones and flesh coming back together and being wrapped in sinew and skin and breath breathed back in by God. This is what happened. In an instant, all the rot and decay not only stopped, but cells began growing back, organs reshaped, the blood began to flow, and (gasps) Lazarus took a breath. breath of God. This is what happened. He opened his eyes. And I imagine him probably, he had to hop out of that tomb, didn't he? Because he was all wrapped up like a mummy in burial clothes. It's an incredible moment of sheer divine Genesis power. Jesus, the God who hates death yet allows it to happen here, has complete control over it. And my friends, what we need to remember is that this is just a sneak preview. 
This is just a peek into the, the glory of what's about to happen at the cross and his resurrection. The cross where, where Jesus himself will enter fully into all our pain and suffering, everybody's, and absorb all our sin, the thing that he hates so much, all of ours, and he will take on himself all our rejection and our betrayal and our alienation from God, all our forsakenness and our judgment and our hell, the very sting of death. And after three days, he will rise, having conquered it. He said on the cross, it is finished. And when he cried that out, everything changed. C.S. Lewis says this about Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus Christ has forced open the door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of a new creation, a new chapter in the history of mankind. My friends, Jesus, God himself, became one of us, took on all our death, all our judgment, all our hell, yours and mine. You know what this means? It means that the whoever in verse 25 really does mean whoever. Let's read verse 25 one more time. It's the one I don't want anybody to miss. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? My friends, the reason that this story of Lazarus' incredible resurrection, that in this story there is only one verse that describes the actual moment of his resurrection in the briefest of detail, and all the other 43 verses are dealing with whether or not Jesus' followers are going to believe as death looms large, is because that's the important thing. That is the question for all of us. And so in one sense, the real miracle that Jesus has been working towards in this whole situation actually happens at the end of our text in verse 45, actually just after our text. Verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, I don't know who that included. Disciples, Martha, I hope it included Mary herself. But what that verse tells us is that in that moment of Lazarus' physical resurrection, there were many others receiving life. Whoever believes in me. It tells us that resurrections were happening all around as people. Even the Jews that, according to verse 8, had come there to stone him. Many put their faith in Jesus and were released from the bonds of sin and the destiny of death and given life, eternal life. My friends, we need to deal with death. 
The reality this morning for all of us is that we are, we're in line, aren't we? It's coming. We're in the death line. It's only a matter of time. If you're young and you think, well, look, I'm, I'm way back in the line. I got, I got lots of time. I'm not too worried about it. Death is tricky. It's a little like being in line at the grocery store and you're, maybe you're way back. You went right after work when everybody goes. You're way back in line. But then what happens? They open a new lane and you're right at the front. That's the way death can be. It's a bit tricky. It's inevitable and a sure thing for all of us and it's coming and we need to face it. We need to feel it deeply as Jesus did. It may not be our turn yet, but it It's everywhere, and it's wrong, and it's awful, and it is coming. We live in a culture, by the way, that encourages us to pretend it's not, to deny it, to put put it out of our, our minds and just distract ourselves with entertainment, or call it natural and just stoically romantically plan to have our ashes spread over our favorite visa as if we're going to enjoy the view. No, it's not natural or romantic. It's the grotesque outworking of our sin and rebellion and the ultimate breach of everything good. It's our damnation. And we need to feel it deeply and we need to hate it, and we need to face it. And as we wait in this world in death's dark shadow, we need to be doing two things. We need to be, first of all, trusting that God is graciously doing his loving work in and through all the suffering and death that we see around us. All the delaying, as he was with Martha and Mary, as he was doing in them, as he did through the cross, the most awful of deaths. We need to trust that he's doing his loving work in the delay. And secondly, we need to be outraged like Jesus by death. More and more, because it is wrong, and it's painful, and it's evil, and it's not how things were meant to be. And that should put a gospel fire in our belly to proclaim the good news. We need to rage against death with the gospel. We need to speak life in the face of death, life in Jesus. True resurrection life. Because, as he said, whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. My friends, those words are as real and as powerful as when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. Do you believe this? If you haven't, you can today. You can know resurrection life in Jesus today. I'm going to pray now, and you can pray with me this prayer and mean it from your heart, and you can know resurrection life. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for sending your son to deal with death, our death, my death. Thank you for sending him to take my place, to take my sin, to give his life, to buy me your forgiveness and life. I repent of my sin and I ask you for his forgiveness and his life. And as I struggle to believe, help me to believe, Father, that I may know you and live. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.